This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. While our team of tax pros are well-versed in all things tax, our areas of expertise include rental real estate and equity compensation. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. At Capital Area Tax Consultants, we believe in pricing transparency and flat fees. Before engaging with us, you'll receive an upfront quote in black and white with a description of any services to be performed. This way, there are no hidden surprises. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Welcome to the Tech Money Podcast, where the worlds of technology and personal finance collide. Hosted by certified financial planner, speaker, blogger, and self-proclaimed personal finance nerd, Malcolm Etheridge. Each episode aims to make you just a little bit smarter about your money, all from the perspective of the tech professional. Without further delay, here's your host. Hey there listeners, Malcolm here. And on today's show, we're talking equity compensation. More specifically, we're talking about some financial planning rules of thumb for people who hold stock options, whether they're in the form of incentive stock or non-qualified stock options. Uh, A couple of years ago, I wrote a blog post titled, Your Employer Just Granted You Stock Options, Now What? And in there, I pointed out that there's a wide gap in the amount of information and education that employers who offer equity comp actually provide to their employees who receive it. And as you likely heard me say on another episode in the same series, that's all about equity comp. The big challenge we're looking to help folks overcome is that stock plan participants receive a decent amount of education from their employers, but almost zero guidance on what to do with those shares once they receive them. And so I decided I'd call up someone I know who knows way more than I do about this topic and just have a conversation. Bruce Brumberg is the co-founder and editor-in-chief of MyStockOptions.com, the go-to resource of financial planners and other such professionals looking for advanced educational content on stock options, restricted stock, ESPPs, and performance shares, to name a few. Bruce holds degrees from from both the University of Michigan and the University of Virginia School of Law. And in addition to his work at MyStockOptions.com, he also runs a similar site called MyNQDC.com, which is devoted to the world of non-qualified deferred comp. As if he didn't have enough to do, Bruce is also a regular contributor to Forbes and has devoted most of his professional career to making complex legal and tax concepts understandable for people who do not enjoy reading the Internal Revenue Code as he does. So with that brief introduction, welcome Bruce Brumberg to the Tech Money Podcast. Welcome, Malcolm, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about stock compensation coming on because as I as I alluded to, no one I know enjoys this stuff nearly as much as you do, which is <laughs> which is really interesting. But I breezed through your resume pretty quickly there in my intro. What did I miss? Well as it relates to you know equity and stock compensation, you've probably hit hit the main things uh, you know professionally. You know, I, I did practice law for a few years and then I had my own legal financial tax publishing companies for a number of years. Back to 1986, and we started mystockoptions.com you know, 21 years ago this, this past June, so in um, you know, 2000. 
we started up. I also have done some a number of video production projects, including very popular insider trading prevention videos, known as Think Twice. And then personally, uh, you know, I do a lot of other things too. I, I coach a high school tennis team, for example, in the spring, and um, you know, I have a family with two kids in their twenties now. Wow. So again, uh, as if you didn't have enough to do. And so just to get us kicked off here, you know, I know that one of your top rules for managing Equity Comp is to set goals, right? And I know that probably sounds a bit obvious to anybody listening, but what do you mean exactly when you say that? Well, the idea is that I've seen through the years that there's a lot of different strategies with stock options or restricted stock units or ESPPs, but the, the people who seem to be the most happy, the most satisfied with what they have or what they had set a financial goal, like they want to use the money to buy a house for a down deposit, or they want to use it for uh, buying a second house, you know, a vacation home, or they want to use it for college tuition, or they want to use it for a big vacation or, or whatever. And they say, that's how much I need after tax from the proceeds. And when the stock price reaches that point, they go ahead and they exercise the options and sell the stock or they sell the company's stock. And they don't look back about it. They don't have second doubts like, well, the company stock kept going up. So that's what I mean by, by setting goals. Deposit on the house for the mortgage, vacation, son or daughter's wedding, whatever. Set yeah. that goal and say, that's what I'm going to do with the share proceeds. And don't rush it either. Mistakes sometimes people make is they say, oh, right away, you know, my shares are vested. I'm going to exercise and hold them. You wouldn't want to do that if you have non-qualified stock options. Maybe if you had incentive stock options, but you wouldn't sure. want to do that with non-qualified. Well, another one of those rules kind of staying in the, the same place is, you know, I'm a regular reader of the content that you guys put out. And another one of those rules that I find is super similar, but you say to develop an overall plan, is that different or is that in the same vein as, you know, making sure that they set that goal, that life, well, life event goal? If you look at non-qualified stock options, because the, the treatment is a little different for ISOs and the strategy can be different. Mm -hmm. Non-qualified stock options, as soon as you exercise them, you know, you're pretty much the same as buying the company's stock and you now have to pay taxes on the spread. So you want to wait to exercise them if you think the company's stock price is always going to keep going up and you're still employed at the company. And so um, by waiting to exercise, you don't want to wait forever. So let's say you have a 10-year term and you're staying at the company for a while. Then you may say, well, in the last three or four years, I'm going to start exercising the options and selling the stock, almost like you would do income averaging of an investment, sort of doing the same thing. You're, you're exercising to get out of the company's stock over a length of time. What can make it more complex is that when you now also have you know, restricted stock units, mm -hmm. where you now have those vesting dates, where you have employee stock purchase plan, where you're also purchasing stock. So you have company stock in different forms, including maybe even your retirement account. And a lot of folks come into contact with doing this work have if they've stayed with the company for a while, they've got a good little mix of all of the different types of ways you can accumulate those shares as, as you were alluding to there. So it, it is really important to uh, make sure that you sort of sort out what's what and how it's all going to, uh, to work together as you're developing that plan. So that's a good note. So you mentioned really quickly as in your response there about, uh, you know, you're three, four years out from when you expect to leave the company. And making sure that you know you exercise accordingly, you know, leading up to to that exit. But along that same line, you know, one of the other things that you say in your writing is to learn what happens when you leave your company, and then tell your family members. The first part is a bit obvious, right? But then, 
why tell family members? Well, the reason you want to tell the family members is 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 not because you think you, one of your you know your spouse is going to leave you, uh, and so they want to have some rights to it, or or your kids are going to de- look to that income to to inherit or have you buy something for them. It's uh, in the event you have are disabled or or pass away. Mm-hmm. So, like with stock options, you have to exercise them, and uh, there's a set term. And if you don't exercise them, you'll lose them. And so, if you have, let's say, non-qualified stock options, and there's you know four years left on the term, then if they're inherited or you have a beneficiary designation, they need to know that there's four years left. But maybe there's only six months left or less. And there's a, and by the time the estate's probated. You know, who knows? They could be forfeited. Also, in many stock option plans or restricted stock, restricted stock unit plans, in the event of death, there's an acceleration of vesting. Or you can actually go to the compensation committee and say, well, in this situation, you know, um, this was a you know, key employee and executive. Um, and the compensation committee may make a decision to accelerate the vesting or let the vesting continue for those grants that are not vested yet. Yeah. You started to allude to your rule of thumb, if you will, uh, or best practice around uh, option holders specifically waiting as possible, waiting as long as possible to exercise. Right. That's kind of just the the general guidance that we would give almost anybody. But are there any exceptions to that rule? Well, you need to know what kind of what kind of stock options you have. So if you have an incentive stock option, that's a big exception. Mm-hmm. Incentive stock options, if you exercise and hold the shares and you do that holding more than two years from the grant date and one year from more than one year from the exercise date, then when you sell the stock, the entire gain over the exercise price is going to be long-term capital gain. So let's say your exercise price is $10 a share, and then you've held it long enough, there's more than two years from grant, more than one year from exercise, and you, you sell it at $30 a share, then that difference between the $30 and the $10 a share, that $20 is going to be all long-term capital gains. Now, of course, that spread and exercise, that's part of the AMT calculation, which makes ISOs even more complicated. Yeah. But that is a big exception You know, if you have ISOs. If you have non-qualified stock options, which are the more popular kind, and they don't have any special tax treatment under the tax laws, and the company doesn't have to follow any special rules for granting them, which makes them more popular to, for a company to use, then when you exercise them, you've just fixed the tax treatment at that date. So you exercise the option. And what makes the stock option so valuable is that fixed exercise price. So I was using that $10 example. You know, mm-hmm. you get the grant at $10 a share, and that's the current market price. The company has to grant the current market price. And then um, you hold it for eight years, and now the market is price for that company stock is $80 a share. You have that fixed exercise price, the fixed purchase price. You, you're buying an $80 stock for $10 a share. Mm-hmm. So that, that full amount of exercise in the future is, is going to be ordinary income. But the total after-tax amount that's going to be in your prof- profit and it's going to be in your pocket is going to be more than if you exercised it when the stock was $12 a share and then held the stock and then sold it at $80. On mystockoptions.com, we have a tool. It's called um, a comparison modeling tool that actually does, shows you that analysis. We have a patent for it because it's sort of counterintuitive. People think, oh, why don't I exercise non-quals early? Yeah. Pay taxes on the spread and then start the capital gains holding period. 
and then sell it at that $80 a share I was giving you. But when you look at the numbers, you will pay more in taxes by waiting to exercise mm-hmm. so that the full spread between that $10 price and the $80 market price is ordinary income. But your net after taxes, the amount you actually walk away from um, is going to be much larger when you wait to exercise, assuming the stock price keeps going up. You can't wait to exercise, let's say, if you leave a company because there's going to be those post-termination exercise rules. Sure. And the company is going to say, okay, you had a 10-year term, no more. Yeah. That's cut short. Your term is now going to end in, you know... 90 days or 60 90 days. 90 days or... after you left or sometimes immediately. Uh, now, in cases of disability or retirement or death, there may be a longer post-exercise deadline period. But, you know, the, you have to be very much aware of that. So that's another exception. Obviously, you can't wait forever because... Uh, you're going to forfeit valuable stock options. Um, you know, the concept of called leverage with stock options, and that that's sort of like the same as what a mortgage is often used as an analogy. Like when you buy a house, you're putting down a certain percentage. You're not mm-hmm. paying the full amount in cash. Let's see, maybe you want to pay the full amount in cash when you have it. But usually, let's say you put down 10% or 20%. You can think of it the same thing with stock options. You're just putting down a sort of a percentage amount, you but you you don't have to come up with it. And that's that exercise price. So we had that $10 exercise price for the $80 stock. You can think of that $10 price as how much you put down on the mortgage. And it makes sense to sort of let it ride as long as possible. At a certain point, though, the spread is so big, you know, I used, again, I'm using 80 and 10. Sure. A random number. That's that um, a, a further stock price increase doesn't really make the spread be that much larger in terms of the percentage amount. So wait a second. So you're saying if I'm if I'm at 80 and it goes from 80 to 85, right? Versus me going from 10 to 100 or 105, there becomes a less sloping, you know, a less 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 slope to that trend line, right? The further out I go, you're saying going from 85 to 100 or 80 to 100 isn't as important as going from 10 to 80. Is that is that well, correct? The difference between 80 and 85, that is a bigger percentage increase than going from 100 to 105. Got it. You know, Got it. Or you think of the spread difference, you know, the difference between 100 and, you know, $10, you know, the difference between 110 is 90. Mm-hmm. You know, and so the difference between the 80 and the 10 is 70. And so you, need, you, you do the math. I mean, a real simple example is let's just say the stock price is, um, you know, $10 a share mm-hmm. and the exercise price is $9 a share. So you have just a $1 spread there. But now the stock price goes up, you know, just another 10%, right? So now the stock price is $11 a share. But now your spread is $2. And so you went from $1 spread when the market price was $10 to now $2 spread when the market price is $11. But that's actually a 100% increase, Yeah, you know, in the proceeds. But as the, the spread gets bigger and bigger, the math doesn't work out the same way. So you say, well, maybe it's not worth the risk, you know, to let the option keep riding. You may want to. I mean, sometimes the best wealth is created by those who wait the longest. Sure. But at the same time, options can be very fragile. We're just focusing on stock options. It's a whole different strategy with restricted stock or restricted stock units in a public company where pretty much it's the same thing. The taxes are fixed when the vesting date occurs and do you continue to hold those shares or not? 
So one other thing I want to 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 get into before I sort of turn the tide a little bit is that you you and your team say to average out of your options exercises, right? Not necessarily have them all happen in the same year. And I assume this is only advice that's pertaining to a cashless exercise type of scenario, but can you explain what that means and and why that would be important? I mean the 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 idea being to wait to exercise. I mean, there's different factors. The way I really think about well, it. Well, no, I'm, I mean, the, the idea of just averaging out those exercises versus having it all happen at one time. Well, again, there's various factors that go into a decision to exercise. I like to say they're personal factors and then they're company factors. And, um, you know, one of the personal factors is what tax bracket you're in, for example. Mm-hmm. And so you want to know what the bracket you're in and you want to know how much room you have in that current bracket before you're going to move up to the next one. Again, we're not talking about ISOs with the AMT calculations. That's very different. We're just talking about a non-qualified stock option exercise. So when you do that exercise, that spread, the difference between, again, we're using the 10 and the 80, that's $70 per share. That's going to be part of your ordinary income. So you have to decide, gee, you know, if I do that now, then I'm going to get that additional income hit. And is it worth it? Mm-hmm. You know, it's going to it's going to bump me into the next tax bracket. So that, that's, especially at year end, it's something people are going to think about. If some of the tax brackets are going to go up the next year, it's a lot something a lot of people think about too. About how to play with the different tax brackets. But they often say, you know, you shouldn't let uh, the tax tail wag the dog. Uh, I don't know who came up with that idea. I don't know why it's a dog. It could be, dog. <laughs> but that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, and it's something you just have to, you know, think about, you know, but when options are close to expiration, I think that's, that's when it's more of a factor too. Let's say you have this 10 year option, you've been waiting to exercise and you're now in year eight or nine, and then you know that your tax bracket next year is going to be higher um, or taxes are going to go up next year for the bracket you're in. So then you maybe decide, oh, I want to, I mean, might as well exercise now instead of waiting. Yeah. I always like the idea of, of averaging out of the positions and, you know, for yeah. certain folks, depending on their role within the company and their proximity to privileged info, right. They'll have to create a 10 B five, one plan, whether they want to or not in order to sell those shares, which essentially forces them to average out systematically anyway. But for the rest of those planned participants who mm-hmm. do have those options, creating a sort of 10 B5 one of their own is a good way, in my opinion, to go in order to help take the emotion out of determining when to exercise. Because it always, you know, as you kind of got to, the longer you hang on to them, the higher the emotions get when the conversation about exercising comes to the forefront. Yeah. Well, when you talk about the rule 10 B5 one trading plan, then what you're looking at is someone setting up a plan of exercising and selling you know, their, their company stock or just selling their company stock they own mm-hmm. with a set schedule. You have to set up that plan when you do not know material non-public information. And uh, there's also certain best practices that have evolved, have evolved. Like you, know, you want to have a certain cooling off period before the first trade. And maybe you don't want to make any trades outside the plan. You may not be able to modify the plan. In the near future, there will definitely be SEC rules on that. Mm-hmm. The current SEC chairman has made it very clear that he thinks there's been abuses in these plans. So you want to be following that development. You know, when people are listening to this podcast in the future, and um, hopefully, it, you know, will be something people want to listen to in the future, <laughs> um, you know, they'll look back at it and they'll say, oh, yeah, those changes happened. So 
I don't know if when the SEC adopts these rules, they're going to propose them first, and they'll definitely be coming out this year. It's my prediction, two thousand and twenty-one. Yeah. Um, you know, there's always going to be a you know time period where people give comments, and then they'll be modified. Uh, but even what the SEC proposes can start being the best practices, and it may make these plans either less popular or mm-hmm. could make them much more popular because now you're giving them even more publicity. And also you've sort of codified, you know, you've set up a set structure for how to do it with the SEC's blessings. I've never seen, you know, either securities rules or tax rule changes that don't have unintended consequences. So we'll sure. have to see what happens. So let's talk taxes for a moment, right? You say, you know, you've been saying for a while, plan participants should determine their tax rates in advance and, you know, kind of watch out for those bracket triggers. But yeah. can you say a little bit more about that, specifically the, the tax bracketing uh, approach to this? Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the factors. So again, we're looking at employee stock options, let's say non-qualified stock options, where when you exercise that spread as part of your ordinary income. So if you want to sort of time it so you don't have yourself pushed into the next tax bracket. You just want to be. You just want to be aware of that. There's no fancy calculation about it. You can just look at last year's tax return, and if you think your income is pretty similar to this year, you just add the amount of income you expect to get from the option exercise to your taxable income. Again, it's the taxable income. There's, there's various deductions that occur, not just what. Just don't take your salary and multiply it by you know monthly salary multiplied by twelve. You have to really look at your tax return and see if that additional income is going to knock you to the next tax bracket. Now, you can say in some ways it's penalizing that income, but you're really looking at the uh, marginal income and what it does to your marginal tax rate. As a financial advisor, you may just say that you really need to look at your effective tax rate. And, mm-hmm. you know, in other words, why, why are you sort of penalizing in some ways the non-qualified stock option uh, income? Because it's you're looking at it on top of it. Well, I know people who decide, for example, with Social Security, you know, there's a there's a yearly maximum for Social Security, so Social mm-hmm. Security wage base. And um, I, I, I've heard people who decide that they want to exercise their stock options early in the year, let's say, to push themselves above the uh, yearly wage base, and then nothing comes out of their salaries. It's like giving themselves, uh, you know, a 6.2% raise because, sure. uh, you know, the Medicare is uncapped, but Social Security is capped based on the wage base. Then I know people who do the opposite. You know, they wait to exercise the stock options until they're above the wage base for um, Social Security on their salary. So there's, you know, there's different different things you can play around with. But you know, again, as I was mentioning before, you don't want taxes themselves to be really driving your decision unless it's closer to expiration. I think when when you're getting close to expiration, maybe it's more of a factor. It's you know, there there are other things you want to look at. You know, diversification. You know, percentage of your net worth in company stock and. I would recommend at least you consider the vested stock options as part of that concentration calculation. Sure. And that's important. Also, you know, what we talked about having goals for the stock options. I mean, that's really important too. I mean, let's just say um, there's a big run up in your company stock price and your, you know, term of your option is, you know, only halfway through. You're in year four or five. You may decide, hey, now's the time to exercise and sell the stock because there's been a big run up and I don't know what's going to happen. You know, my, my company's drug has been approved and uh, it's selling like crazy, but, you know, you know, there's not as much in the pipeline and this is, that's not insider trading. You just happen to know that sure. information, probably the analysts know it too. And you may decide, you know, now's the time to exercise and sell the stock. I don't think it's going to go much higher uh, because there isn't that risk and, and we already have that big spread. There. 
I know, again, because I like constantly read what you guys put out on this topic, <laughs> one of your recommendations is that all option holders learn about the alternative minimum tax, right? You're talking about Social Security wage base and people who are in position to have the ability to decide to intentionally exercise enough to get above that $138,000 or whatever the number actually yeah. is at this point, right? Yeah. So we're talking about people who have a pretty significant annual income, but AMT is not an easy thing to learn for most financial planners, right? Let me say that, or even some tax professionals for that matter who maybe won't admit it. But any recommendations for how to go about learning that? Well, I think the most important thing to know is what the rule is that would trigger AMT. And that is when you exercise incentive stock options. Then we've been talking a lot about non-qualified stock options. Mm -hmm. Now we're talking about incentive stock options. It's a confusing term because really they're all incentives, right? But the incentive stock option or ISO is an option that gets special tax premium under the tax code. And there's different rules a company needs to follow. But the big thing is that, and I, I mentioned this a little earlier, that if you hold the shares long enough, meaning two years from grant date and one year from exercise, Mm -hmm. And then you sell it, then the entire spread, that difference between the $10 of using and you know the $80 and $70 is all long-term capital gains. And um, you know, right now that's taxed at you know a lower rate, you know, zero or 15 or 20% plus the Medicare surcharge of 3.8%. However, when you exercise those ISOs mm -hmm. and you hold it through the calendar year of exercise, so that $10 exercise price, the market price will say when you exercised it was 15. Sure. So that $5 amount per share, that becomes part of your alternative minimum tax calculation. And it becomes part of your alternative minimum income. So that's the first step. So whatever happened in that first year after I was well, granted the, first the calendar, shares. First calendar, it's very important to know that um, you could exercise it in November yep. and, and hold it for two months. Uh, and it's now January, but that spread at exercise is part of your AMT income calculation. So the first thing is, what is the income, AMT income? Then you, you're, what you're doing with the AMT income is you're pretty much adding back certain things to your income. You know, there isn't the same standard deduction or itemized deductions on the AMT. They're different. They're different. Well, and, and one of the reasons people are less likely to trigger AMT is the property tax limit. You know, it can only be $10,000 a year yep. on state or local taxes. And that used to be an item you would add back to AMT income. And so that in and of itself, putting aside the ISO spread at exercise, just your property tax base and where you live could trigger the AMT. So now you come up with the AMT income amount and you deduct from that an exemption amount. So you don't have that standard deduction like you do under the ordinary system. You have an exemption amount. And under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, that exemption amount went up a little bit. Sure. But like a lot of tax code provisions, there's a phase out of that exemption amount. And the big change under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act is where the phase out starts. And it's 25 cents for each dollar over the initial threshold. Mm -hmm. Went way up, way up. So you're going to be able to use most likely that full exemption amount. Uh, I think, you know, off the top of my head, I, I could go look at the number now if you want me to say it. But it's, you know, it's over a million dollars worth of, of AMT income before the, the phase out starts for someone filing jointly. Mm -hmm. so, Fewer people are paying AMT now for multiple reasons. One of them is that it's much less likely that the AMT income exemption amount is going to phase out. And then also because the state and local taxes are limited to that $10,000. So now you come up with 
your AMT income amount and you multiply that by 28 or 26%. Sure. The reason those percentages are the AMT tax rate and it's just like two brackets, that's it. It's pretty much a flat tax, which by the way, is a much simpler tax in some ways. You know, when they talk about tax reform and increasing taxes, sometimes I think that just a, you know, a flat tax would be much simpler. There's not much about the code that people ever refer to as simple. So <laughs> you're, you're, yeah, right, uh, right, right. The simplest way it's, it, for political reasons, the flat taxes, you know, is never really, it's taken off. And in other, in other countries, it does, you know, you just have a flat tax and you have people below a certain income aren't taxed and then people above that have a flat tax and there's just very few deductions, but yeah. whatever. I mean, <laughs> that's you know, a whole like, different podcast. Or... Not, you know, when you look at the newest proposals, you know, increasing the top rate and doing this with capital gains and all that, it's like, well, if you decide you want to raise X amount of money, how about just, you know, try a flat tax and try to push that forward? Yeah. Because it actually could have more part bipartisan support than, you know, making the code more complicated. But in any case, if you have ISOs, the key thing is if you have incentive stock options, ISOs, you exercise and hold the shares to the calendar year of exercise. That spreaded exercise is part of your AMT income calculation. It's much less likely you would trigger the AMT, but you still need to go through this whole calculation to see which is higher, your AMT tax or your ordinary tax, you know, the 1040 tax. So uh, let's stick with ISOs for a second, but shift the conversation to those who are working for privately held companies. Right. So I occasionally will work with someone who uh, works for a privately held company. Then they walk into work one day and all of a sudden an announcement is made that there are plans to go public. Right. And I've read your advice here and much of it centers around familiarizing yourself with the plans vesting requirements. Right. That's that's really where the meat of the articles uh, land. So can you say a bit about that? Are we talking about focusing on stock options or restricted stock units? No, this is for the the, the stock options. The, okay. the RSUs are a little bit more self-explanatory in a lot of cases, but yeah. the ISOs still, in this case, you know, company decides we're going to go public. Everybody's award agreement says something different, I've found, in a lot of cases, even dealing with like three people who work for the same company and have similar uh-huh. tenure. Those yeah. award agreements don't always say the same thing. That's more what I'm, I'm thinking about. Those vesting requirements are, are interesting. Well, there's... there's- two kinds of stock options, two kinds of structures. Mm-hmm. The tax treatment for stock options in a public company and a private company are the same. And it seems like they shouldn't be the same uh, because there's, there's no liquidity. You know, when in a public company, people often exercise and sell the stock or some of the stock to cover the exercise costs or the taxes. But you can't do that in a private company. Sure. Do so you think the tax treatment would be different? And it's not. There's a tax code provision that was in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act called 83I that provides companies the ability to grant a special kind of option that would allow you to defer the income for up to five years. But very few companies are doing that because that provision has some flaws in it. I'd like to see it amended. I've made some proposals to make some changes in it, which can make it very attractive. But let's just look at the current tax code and the current structure. Mm-hmm. So because of this tax being the same for private companies as it is for public companies, you know, a lot of smart lawyers and tax experts came up with a couple of different designs for private company pre-IPO stock options. One of them is called an early exercise stock option. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's called an immediately exercise stock option, or it's called an 83B stock option, or restricted stock option, or whatever. And that's when you get the grant right away, even though there is a vesting provisions, it allows you to exercise them immediately, immediately. 
And so now you get the stock. However, it has a vesting schedule similar to what the stock options have. So um, you get these stock options, you get you know 10,000 stock options at 18 cents a share, and you can exercise them all immediately, you know, to 18 cents times the 10,000. I try to do the math during this podcast, and I'm, even though it seems simple, I probably would get it wrong. <laughs> so, um, but so you come up with that money, not much, right? And yeah. so now you have, you know, those 10,000 shares, and they have to vest. So if the company has, you know, half of it vests after one year, and then monthly after that, it's going to be the same vesting that's going to apply to your stock. Sure. And so only once it vests, you truly own the shares. And even if you think you truly own the shares, if it's a private company, and you leave it early, then you're probably going to have to sell it back to the company. So the vesting is important there to realize that when you exercise the options in an early exercise stock options, and you, if you want to do it, you should do it right away when there's no spread and there's no, there's not going to be any ordinary income or AMT if you do it right away. And you're confident the company is going to make it go public or get acquired. I want to add in there real quick while you're talking about the 83B that one of the things that I see get lost Mm -hmm. in people's uh, understanding of the rule and desire to take this election is that you're making, inherently you're making a bet that the value of those shares is going to continue to increase significantly. And these are privately held companies and we know how volatile startups can be. And so I just want to make sure that people listening to this are aware that that is essentially the bet that you're making. I know a lot of times with uh, any kind of options, right, we're assuming that the stock price is going to go up. But especially with an 83B election, where you're you're raising your hand to the IRS and saying, I want to pay the taxes now, I want to pay the taxes early, you are uh, definitively betting that that stock price is going up from where it is. And again, in startup land, who knows, right? And so I just, I always caution people, uh, not against doing it, but just, I want to make sure that people are aware of that's what you're saying when you make that election. Well, it's a question of whether there's any spread or not. I mean, some people say, you know, that you would want to do it, either want to do the election and the exercise early. So there's mm-hmm. very little spread or no spread at all. So if you get this grant at 18 cents a share, that's the valuation. There's been a 409A valuation. That's the current valuation of the grant. So you're not going to owe any taxes. So the, the reason you do the early exercise is you start the capital gains holding period early. And then also um, there's no or little ordinary income record. You have the risk. You have the risk that you know you're going to lose that. You have the risk that you could be holding it for ten years, and maybe you could have done something else with that money. You know, bought Amazon stock at the same time you bought this. Yeah. You want to be a shareholder of the company, and you do that. So, in terms of investing, the 83B is something you would do, and you have to do it within 30 days of exercise. You have to make a filing with the IRS. There's no official IRS form, but there's been. IRS guidance on what should be in that filing. And then you want to give it to your company. You no longer have to attach the 83B election to your tax return. You still have to do that. The tax rate for non-qualified stock options is pretty straightforward. For ISOs, based on guidance that came out from the IRS in 2004, if you do a disqualifying disposition before the shares have actually invested, then the tax treatment can get a little more complicated for you. So the other strategy is you know wait till later on. So you know the company is going public or about to get acquired. And then you do, you do an election. And then if it's one of those 83B ones, you know, you, you would have a situation where you have taxable income, but you do mm-hmm. start your capital gains holding period early. So the other strategy would be you wait, if there are, if there are ISOs, you, know, you wait till late. Uh, wait till, you know, your company has filed its S1, you know, or it's about to file an S1 to go public, or, you know, it's 
pretty seriously uh, looking at it. And so now you you make an ISO exercise. And if you hold it at least one year from exercise, because the two years from grant requirement is long past. Sure. Um, now I hold it for one year from exercise. Then that tire difference between the sales price and the exercise price is going to be capital gains income. And what's happened in the past year, you know, you've had this big upturn in IPOs. So more employees have been hit with ISO AMT issues than in the past because, you know, they, they did decide to exercise before the IPO and then hold the stock long enough, but they had the 18, 18 cent share exercise price and the stock, you know, goes public at, you know, $15 a share or, or it's $15 a share from the most recent valuation. And so you have some issues there with more AMT income. Mm-hmm. becomes part of the AMT income calculation and it's more likely that you may trigger the AMT. So you want to do that that type of analysis. Now, let's say it's just a traditional stock option, the kind you get in a public company. Like a public company, there's no 83B election on stock options because co- public companies wouldn't grant you early exercise options because you might as well just buy it on the op- stock on the open market, right? Because mm-hmm. the real thing in early exercise options is to exercise them right away. You might as well just let it ride the public company. But um, if you have a regular stock option in a private company, then the tax treatment is the same, again, as in a public company. It's only when the shares vest do you need to actually exercise them. And then you have to figure out, well, I can't sell the stock. You know, there's, there's different financing techniques that have come up with. There's third parties, different companies that'll provide some financing if you want for the stock options. You can do that with the 83B one too. It's just that, we're looking at a situation where, again, $0.18 cents a share exercise price, and now the options are, are vested, that you don't know if the company is going to go public or get acquired, and you don't know when that's going to happen. So now sure. you go ahead and you exercise the non-qualified stock options, and the market price from the last evaluation is $5 a share, and you have an $0.18 cent exercise price. So that difference between the $5 and the $0.18, cents, that is $4.82, right? Yeah. Yeah. $4.82. Right, that's part of uh, your ordinary income. You're going to owe taxes on that, but you can't sell the stock, so it, it becomes more complicated. Complicated is a uh, an understatement. Yeah, more well, actually, the, it's not that good. The tax is straightforward. It's just you have to come up with the financing, and now you're out the exercise price and the taxes, and so the the risk multiplies. Yeah, the risk you're facing. Well, as we get ready to close out here, my last question is more of uh, an opinion question than anything. So I want to preface it by saying it that way. You know, it's not necessarily uh, one that there's a hard and fast rule for, but because you're so versed in all of the different ways that a person could be compensated with equity, I think you're uniquely qualified to answer this one for me. Um, Which would you say is the better way to receive that equity comp between ISOs, NSOs, RSUs, and even PSUs hanging out there. Meaning if you were starting for a company today, right? And the compensation committee said, Bruce, it's completely up to you. You tell us how you'd like to receive your equity. What do you choose? Well, some companies do have those kind of employee choice programs. I mean, it's not that common because they're more complicated to administer where you can you know, choose options, restricted stock units, or sometimes just cash mm-hmm. in terms of a long-term incentive. Because all this is considered an LTIP or long-term incentive plan. And it varies in a public versus a private company and what your opportunity is, you know, where you think the stock price is going to go. That's probably one of the biggest determinants. Sure. And also how big is the grant? So with, with stock options, 
um, you're going to get um, a much larger grant than you will with restricted stock or restricted stock units because restricted stock has a set value when it vests, where stock options are only worth something based on the appreciation, the increase in the stock price from the grant date. So let's say you get, you would have gotten you know, 30,000 stock options, you would only get 10,000 RSUs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, right away, you're getting more of those stock options. And when you run the numbers and you look at it, you can see that it doesn't take that much of an increase over the term for the options to be worth more than the restricted stock mm-hmm. or, or RSUs. I'm using restricted stock and RSUs for the same thing. Which is basically, you know, consider a full value stock grant. You just have to work at the company a certain length of time and you get the shares. Uh, they're, they're pretty close siblings, RSUs and restricted stock. But so, it sounds I mean, like you're leaning more toward the uh, options versus restricted stock then. Well, if you're confident that the company's stock price is going to go up. Sure. You know, I, I happen to know some people different. Yeah, I'm in the board in the Boston area and I know some people who work at various. Um, Pharmaceutical companies, uh, mm-hmm. biotech companies, some very high-profile ones, you know, and and some of them, you know, they they got stock options before, and the stock price has gone way up, and now they're hoping they get restricted stock units because they don't know what's going to happen with their company stock because it, it's done so well recently. So that's really what it really depends on: how many you getting, what your tolerance is for the risk, and where the company stock price is going. In a private company. Based on you know the t- tax rules, it's going to be stock options. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just the way it goes. And an ISO would be a better thing to get. If you don't think you're going to trigger the AMT, and you're going to exercise and hold the stock. It's also with ISOs. Don't forget, there's no there's no withholding. There's no Medicare and Social Security that comes out at all. With non qualified stock options, there is. And um, the only thing with ISOs too is there's a limit on how many you could get in terms of. Um, no more than $100,000 worth vested or exercisables in any one given year. Sure. But I mean, if you, if you have stock, if you, if you're like set on exercising them in a private company and you're going to exercise them right away, then, um, you know, a general rule is you actually want to get non-qualified stock options. And the reason for that is if you exercise them right away, so there's no spread, forget no Medicare, Social Security, or any income, um, then if the company should get quickly acquired, then um, you're in a better situation because you don't have to deal with this two-year, one-year kind of thing. Gotcha. Right? Um, it, but if you have, you know, and so that can be, it can be a better, can be a better arrangement. You don't have to deal with the two-year, one-year. But with, with, and with ISOs, you do, you do have to deal with that. So if you're confident in your companies and you have the money to put up, then, you know, and then you're getting a lot more shares than the stock options are, are always going to be better. They're always, those are the big wealth builders. I thought that's what you would say, but I, I, you know, you're the guy, right? The guy behind mystockoptions.com. And so I just, you know, I thought since I had you, I would, I would ask that question, but I appreciate it, Bruce. This has been great. Thank you for being so, so generous with your time. And I'm sure that my fellow nerds are going to appreciate all of the detail uh, that you give with, with your answers and also the writing um, that you do. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about you and or mystockoptions.com after this goes live? Well, thank you. Thank you very much. You know, adding to what you said before, you know, again, it's your risk tolerance really matters. If you're in a, you know, if you're in a public company, the RSUs are going to have set value. And that's why some companies move to them too. You know, they, they thought that their employees didn't have the stomach for volatility. But yeah, we have mystockoptions.com. You know, go visit our website and we cover all types of equity compensation. Like some ways, stock options have become a generic term for it. So we have you know, ESPP content, 
tools and and stock options, restricted stock, and, you know, videos, you know, podcasts, with quizzes too. You know, you can try some of our quizzes and courses we have. And we you know we've been doing webinars. I know that you've watched some of those webinars. You know, thank you for that. So yeah, yeah, come out and visit the website. And you know, we've been at it, as I said, we're just is over 20 years. We've seen a lot of different cycles and a lot of different changes in equity compensation, but we're, we've become a very respected independent source on with our content and tools on all types of equity comp. 20 years strong, and there is tons of content up there. I, I, I can't even begin to, to do it justice. But uh, Eric with an A, why don't you go ahead and close us out, sir? Absolutely. be my pleasure. Bruce, thank you so much for being on the show, of course. And Malcolm, thank you for creating this show to educate your audience. Uh, it's always a pleasure being with you. And of course, our last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Tech Money Podcast with Malcolm Etheridge. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Malcolm comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your colleagues. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at Tech Money, our hope is that this show helped make you a little smarter about your money. This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out malcolmetheridge.com slash podcast. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover, or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is malcolmetheridge.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge, with the production, the editing and sound controls powered by Proudmouth. This has been a Malcolm on Money original. Thank you for listening. The information shared in this recording and by its guests represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not represent the views or opinions of the host. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This content is not, nor is it intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. It is always recommended that you seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your personal financial situation. This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. Our team of certified public accountants and enrolled agents is well-versed in the latest tax laws, ensuring that you capitalize on every opportunity for strategic tax optimization. We anticipate changes and keep you up to date on opportunities to potentially reduce your tax bill in the future. With a focus on precision and strategic planning, we are your trusted partner both during tax season and throughout the year. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Um...